0: The American Petroleum Institute, driving safety, environmental protection, and sustainability across the natural gas and oil industry through world-class standards and safety programs. Since its formation as a standard-setting organization in 1919, API has developed more than 800 standards to enhance industry operations worldwide. Find out more at API.org. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. You smell what Barack is cooking. You didn't build that. I'll give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. Just those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I'm the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your industry malcontent and ATM of Reckless Opinion grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. And you better make it a big cup because quite frankly, you're going to need it. So where are we at? Now, as you may have known from the last episode I released, I was planning on doing a big Abu Dhabi special talking about the history of it and its impact on the energy sector and all of that. But I've had to put those plans on hold because quite frankly, we have to talk about the month of October so far. Now, even by the time this episode gets released, I'm recording on the 17th of October. It's not going to go out until the 24th or 25th. Some of this will be settled and will be in a different position. But I think it's important that we talk about it in this episode. Um, so, yeah, uh, the month of October has been a little insane, you might have noticed. And we're going to ask a few basic questions as usual. First off, what the fuck is going on? Second, how did we get here? third how big a deal is this and fourth where do we go from here so let's begin with the basic question one what the fuck is going on and i mean can you guys just just take a minute can you guys remember how this month even started So two things of note have happened. First, on October 2nd, a motion to vacate was filed against U.S. Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy by his own party, the Republicans, leaving the United States without a speaker, which means no legislation can be passed. Secondly, on October 7th, the terrorist organization Hamas, based in the Gaza Strip, launched an Operation al Akwasa flood, a series of coordinated attacks on Israel, which started with the launching of some 3,000 missiles and rockets while Hamas forces crossed the border and began attacking civilian targets and taking hostages. Around 1,200 at this point, Israeli um, civilians primarily have been killed, with at least another 150 civilians and soldiers being taken as hostages into the Gaza Strip. And this has invariably kicked off what is now being described as the 2023 Israel-Hamas War. And it's being teed up to be a bloody mess. So all of this in the span of two weeks. That is what the fuck is going on. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention something a friend of mine said, which is, you left for Abu Dhabi, and um, you know, basically the day after you left, the U.S. House of Representatives imploded. Then the day that you left the Middle East, a war breaks out. The question my friends are asking me is, am I one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Because it seems like every time I leave a country, there's a wake of devastation and chaos in my trail. This might all just be my fault. We don't know. If you happen to think that I am one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, please let me know. right in, uh, jordan.driscoll uh, at oggn.com, and let me know which horseman of the apocalypse you think I happen to be. Uh, you know, hashtag a pale horse, we'll see. At any rate, that is, in short, what is going on. And we simply have to talk about this because the ramifications of all of these things are going to be absolutely monstrous. So, first off, to my overseas audience, I'm going to ahead and just apologize. We're going to spend a lot of time today talking about the current debacle in American politics. And this, unfortunately, impacts most of you in some sort of a significant way. So bear with me, but this is something we have to get through. Secondly, um, well, there's not much of a secondly, is there? Let's just get into it and uh, talk about how the hell we got here. Okay. So, let me give you a reminder. On October 2nd, Matt Gates, Republican representative from Florida's 1st District, filed a motion to vacate against Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, forcing a vote on McCarthy's removal within two legislative days. Now, you might be wondering, how can one man force a vote to remove the Speaker of the House? And ostensibly the speaker being the third most powerful position in the federal government. Well, you might remember back in January when the Republicans couldn't seem to figure out who they were going to elect as speaker when they won an insanely narrow margin in the House. McCarthy himself was elected after some 15 rounds of voting and only elected after making some Pretty serious concessions to the Freedom Caucus. Now, the Freedom Caucus, for my overseas listeners, is a self-described ultra-conservative far-right coalition of politicians in the U.S. Congress who have become something of a sub-party within the Republican Party. And there are these sort of little caucuses throughout Congress, although the Freedom Caucus is certainly going to be a bit of a topic on today's uh, episode because they're kind of at the core of this current debacle. Okay. So – Here's the thing. The Republicans had a super narrow majority. And with the Freedom Caucus being about 45 members out of the, let's call it, 220 Republicans, give or take, 212, 15, somewhere in there, uh, the problem is the Republicans were going to have to be completely united to get a speaker of the House elected because certainly the Democrats more than likely weren't going to cross the aisle and vote for anybody. And so the Republicans were going to have to be totally united. But the Freedom Caucus – having about 20 to 25% of the membership of the Republicans has a pretty significant chunk of voting power. And with the margins being this narrow in the House of Representatives, the Republicans were basically left with two options. If they wanted to get anything done, they were either going to have to cross party lines and work with the Democrats to form a majority, or B, cater to the desires of the Freedom Caucus to get the bulk of the Republican votes aligned for anything to pass. And thus far, Republican leadership has more or less chosen the latter to this point. So to get McCarthy elected to Speaker back in January, several concessions to the Freedom Caucus had to be made, such as more enforcement to allow more times for bills to be read, which is not in and of itself a bad thing. We do want our legislatures to know what the hell they're voting for. That's a pretty good idea. The second thing the Freedom Caucus asked for was giving key leadership seats to Republican Party members who were also members of the Freedom Caucus, which turns out has been a little less of a great idea. So basically making sure that this minority party within the larger party was getting more leadership seats than they would normally be entitled to. The third thing that they asked for was an end to U.S. uh, military aid to the Ukraine, which I've talked about how important it is to the energy sector that Russia not win that conflict. And so if any of you listening have any questions about that, I would advise you to go back and listen to those episodes. If I need to do a episode kind of re-summarizing all that, I can at some point. But the bottom line is we don't want Russia to have an energy monopoly in Europe and in Asia. So it's actually in our industry's best interest for Ukraine to win. I I know that that seems to be something that a lot of folks have a hard time wrapping their head around um, in Congress on the right. But as far as our energy sector is concerned, and for a lot of other geopolitical reasons I'm not going to go into right now, we actually don't want Russia to win that because it's not great for the energy sector. But putting all that aside, I've done episodes on that. Feel free to listen to them. At any rate, the last thing the Freedom Caucus asked for was a change to the rules on how difficult or easy it was to remove a Speaker of the House. And they lowered the standards for that so that a single representative can force a vote to remove a Speaker. And this was done sort of as a way to put a gun to the head of the Speaker of the House, McCarthy, that if he did too many things the Freedom Caucus didn't like, they could pull the trigger and get him ousted. Now, previously, the rule has been that the party that wins the majority in the House they elect the speaker from among among themselves. And traditionally, if they wanted to remove a speaker, they would have to have a 51% uh, majority within the party before the motion to vacate could come to the floor and be voted on in general. But this rule change meant that instead of getting most of the party to be in favor of getting rid of the speaker, now any one person could get rid of them. Now, what's important to note is that rule is now on the books. Now, Obviously, that can be changed, but only once a speaker gets in office and they can get enough backing to get Congress to change the rule or the House to change the rule and how they operate. For some historical context, the motion to vacate is something that is incredibly rarely used. In fact, in the... 250 years of American history, it's only been used a handful of times. The first was in 1910 when Republican Speaker Joe Cannon, who filed a motion to vacate on himself, which basically was a trick he pulled to force the arguing Republicans to demonstrate they were willing to go along with him and his agenda – um, or he would be run out of office, and and again they supported him. They didn't vacate him, even though he filed it on himself. And then the Republicans were forced to kind of play along and do what Cannon wanted. Uh, that was it. That was that was it. Up until 2015, when Republican Re- Representative Mark Meadows filed a motion to vacate on Speaker John Boehner. But because this was not introduced to the party, it was only introduced on the floor of the House under the old rules, the Speaker merely shuffled it off to a committee where it died and was never dealt with. This was pretty much a political stunt to express Mark Meadows and, um, at the time, members of what would become the founding of the Freedom Caucus to express their displeasure in John Boner's um, uh, tenure as Speaker. The last time it was used was, you guessed it, Two weeks ago. That's right. In 250 years of American history, it's only been used three times, once over a century ago, and then twice in the last decade. And what's interesting about this is the only people to ever use, if you were paying attention just now, the only people to ever use a motion to vacate so far have been Republicans against their own party. That's interesting. Okay. So moving on from that. Internally, the Republicans made this deal between themselves and the Freedom Caucus that they would make all of these changes and all these rule changes and all these concessions to the Freedom Caucus in exchange for getting McCarthy elected back in. Now, it was obviously a bad deal. Now, it means if you're the speaker, you're basically held hostage to the whims of any member of Congress at all times. And with the Republicans having such a narrow majority, it would be virtually impossible to avoid a motion to vacate at some point, because at some point, of course, McCarthy is going to piss someone off enough to get himself deposed, and he did. So first off, he pissed off the Freedom Caucus by working with moderate Republicans and Democrats to get the initial debt ceiling crisis in the U.S. resolved back in May. Now, there were also worries that the motion to vacate might be triggered then, but it wasn't. And conveniently around this time, McCarthy did start talking about how uh, it might be time to impeach Biden, something the Freedom Caucus had been pushing for and wanting. And it was basically uh, the moment that the uh, sarcophagus of Joe Biden muttered the oath of office. The Freedom Caucus wanted him out. They wanted some sort of impeachment. And pretty much it looks like McCarthy just started talking about that as a way to appeal to them and to settle them down from the fact that he had to work with Democrats to get an extension on the, the budget. And the deficit. At any rate, that didn't really make anybody happy. Uh, One, he's pissing off Democrats at this point by talking about impeaching the sarcophagus of Joe Biden for dubious reasons at best that don't make any real sense. And he's pissing off the Freedom Caucus by working with the Democrats to get the budget extended. So the man was in a lose lose situation. And that's by design. So unfortunately, By the time we get to September, it was time to vote to authorize Congress to continue funding the government yet again, and we were posed for another government shutdown. Now, the Freedom Caucus, having about 45 members of Congress, were just big enough to block and ensure the Republican budget and funding plan didn't pass because, frankly, they just didn't like it. Now, at the 11th hour, McCarthy struck a deal with Democrats to get 45 days' worth of funding through continuing resolutions through the House, staved off from a potential government shutdown or a default on our debt. So, that was back in September. Now, in response, Matt Gaetz decided it was time to launch the political nuke, as it were, and he pushed for the motion to vacate. The vote was interesting, to say the least. You see, the Republican Party didn't want McCarthy out of the way, or at least not like this. 96% of Republicans voted to keep McCarthy in the speakership with only a handful of Freedom Caucus members voting with Democrats to oust McCarthy. And if you're wondering, hey, didn't Matt Gaetz claim that he needed to force McCarthy out partially because he worked with too many Democrats and then Gates himself just worked with Democrats to force out McCarthy? Yeah, yeah, that's what you just heard. I personally call that some capital-grade hypocrisy, but here we are. Now, you may be also wondering why the Democrats would go along with this with the Freedom Caucus members who wanted to oust McCarthy. Well, it's simple. Uh, McCarthy uh, had effectively um, reached across the aisle to work with them. So what's their beef? Well, He would then get on TV and bitch about how the Democrats held everything up and caused all the problems to begin with, which in turn torched his relationship with the Democrats who, frankly, seem to really enjoy the idea of the Republican Party eating itself. And they're not going to get in the way when all the Republicans seem to be doing right now is shooting themselves in the dick uh, time after time. So, yeah, that's how we got here. Now, here's the next question. How big a deal is this? So, without a Speaker of the House, no legislation can pass or be dealt with until a new Speaker is elected. And don't forget that at the time of this recording, we're only around 30 days out from a funding resolution running out, which means the government's going to shut down, which at this point almost seems like an oxymoron, or we default on the United States sovereign debt. Not a great thing. Now, ordinarily, I would be in favor of the government incapable of doing much of anything through gridlock. I generally like seeing the government not able to do much of anything. However, there are some big things happening out in the world right now, and the problem we don't need is a more dysfunctional U.S. government, and we will talk about that here in a second. But here's the thing. Two weeks into this crisis, the Republicans don't seem any closer to to figuring out who a new speaker is going to be. Now, as it happens, I just got done minutes ago watching the first round of voting on the 17th for the role of speaker. Now, by the time this episode gets released, they may have already solved this problem. We'll see. But where it sits right now... uh, it didn't work. Initially, Scalise had um, been a nominated of Louisiana. However, the entire um, Republican Party didn't have enough votes for him. He stepped down, and then Jim Jordan, the Ohio representative and founding member of the Freedom Caucus, put himself forward to be elected as Speaker. But he lost massively on the internal vote initially, made a lot of wheeling and dealing, and has decided he's going to continue running for it, and it's going to go to the entire House of Representatives to be voted on, which the first round of that just happened. Now, he is practically certain, uh, well, I say practically certain, he certainly did in the first round and will almost assuredly in subsequent votes not receive any of the Democrat votes. That's a foregone conclusion. He's Freedom Caucus, he's much too far right, and now the Democrats are going to cross the aisle and elect him. And the margins are so tight that the only way that he wins is if he basically gets 100 percent of Republicans to vote for him. In fact, he can only afford to lose at this point four Republican votes, um, and he does not get the speakership. That's right. That's that's how tight the, the margins are out of the 430-some-odd people. There's only four that can go either direction that will change everything. Okay, so – Ironically, there was even mention uh, by members of the Freedom Caucus, and this is kind of funny, of trying to elect Donald Trump as Speaker of the House because we're already in crazy land. Why the fuck not? Now, now everybody, uh, my Republican brethren and sister uh, don't get too excited. It's not going to happen. It, it's not going to happen. Democrats, don't, don't. Don't go out and hang yourselves over this, okay, my Democratic brethren and sisters. Y'all, calm down too. Stand by and stand, you know, stand down. Uh, here's the deal. Ironically, the House of Representatives rules actually make it uh, against rules with the Republican Party to elect or to nominate a speaker who has an indictment for felony charges, which Trump has, right, wrong, or indifferent a lot of indictments right now, so he can't actually be nominated or elected to the office of speaker, ironically, although, bizarrely enough, he can be elected as president. Um, Nothing prevents Donald Trump from running for office or being elected with indictments or convictions, so, you know, that'll be interesting. Um, At any rate, that's where we're at right now. Um, So, the bottom line is, we have to have a speaker of the house elected; otherwise, no legislation can happen. And the first piece of legislation, being as it's a privileged motion, is the election of a speaker. So the legislature is completely shut down until such time as a speaker gets elected. That's where we're at, and that's how we got here. Now, for the final question: Where do we go from here? What's likely to happen? Well. With any luck, this situation will be mostly resolved by the time this episode comes out, so I'm going to be speaking a little bit hypothetically on where I think we're likely to go or what we ought to be doing, um, and we'll see how close to the mark I come. As I see it, and and just to give you a rundown on how the first round of voting went, just to be clear, uh, the first round of voting, Jim Jordan got 200 votes dead even. Democrat um, Jeffries, uh, representative from New York uh, Uh, God, I can't remember his first name. Um, I'm going to butcher it if I try and say it, so I'm not going to. But the former Speaker of the House for the Democrats, he was put up as the um, Democratic nominee, which, of course, they don't have the majority. So it seems unlikely he would get elected. But he got 212 votes. That's right. He got 12 more votes than the Republicans. That's the minority party in the House of Representatives, and they got more votes for Speaker than the majority party did. Now, you may be saying to yourself, there's about 20 votes missing, and you'd be right. 20 Republicans voted for literally anybody else. Um, Some of them voted for Scalise. Some of them voted for just random people. Didn't really matter. 20 Republicans absolutely refused to vote for Jim Jordan on the grounds that he was too extreme, too far right, and all those sorts of things. So, Here is the question. We're going to go into multiple rounds of voting. We have no idea how many it's going to be, but I reckon quite a few. And this is where we have to look into our crystal ball and see what might happen. Oh, now we got to take a sip of our coffee and mentally brace ourselves for this. Okay. So here's the thing. There's only three ways this situation gets resolved in the House of Representatives. The first way is that the Freedom Caucus decides to cave in and basically you know, go along with the mainstream Republicans and put whoever it is as a moderate that they want in. That person is going to be more likely to get something done with the Democrats in regards to the budget. And keep in mind that 30 days that we have left on the ticking time bomb until default is certainly hovering Normally, these negotiations take weeks in and of themselves, so every week that ticks by that we don't have a speaker or a functional Congress is a big problem. But I don't think that's likely to happen. I don't think the Freedom Caucus is likely to cave in, or at least not the majority of them, and go along with a more moderate Republican. I, I just don't know that I see that. It could happen. It is one of the ways, but it involves some pretty significant changes there. The problem is if you go to the Freedom Caucus website, I, they flat out say, by all means, let's default on our debt and shut down the government completely. Like That's sort of where they're at. So if they're that far down the rabbit hole, and don't get me wrong, there's days I kind of agree with that, but now's not the time for that shenanigan, uh, that kind of shenaniganry. But the problem is uh, they're, they're probably not going to budge. They're just not there. So that means the second option is the – Majority of the Republicans, the roughly 150 or so that are not members of the Freedom Caucus, will have to bend over and do whatever it is the minority Freedom Caucus wants and put whoever they want in charge, which right now who they're pushing for is Jim Jordan. Now, first round of votes, that didn't work. Uh, The real question is going to be on the second and subsequent rounds of votes. Does Jim Jordan manage to get more people and move basically all 20 of those votes he effectively needs? Or does he lose votes? And so far, even after this first round of voting, I'm looking at Twitter, or X as it's now called, and there's at least five Republicans who have come out and said, we voted yes on the first round, we will not vote formal on the second round, which means the gap that Jim Jordan has to overcome is possibly going to get larger, not smaller. That's moving the wrong direction. So what happens? If the mainstream Republicans can't decide to swing all the way over to what the whims and wants are of the Freedom Caucus, what is the third option? And that third option is that a smaller number of Republicans, and they only need five at the current count, flip to Democrat and vote for Hakeem Jeffries. I believe that's his name. And if I screwed it up, I'm sorry. But if they vote for Jeffries, then basically you wind up with the unprecedented at the federal level scenario of a Speaker of the House from the minority party. Like so many things that have happened in politics in the past couple of years, it's something that I never thought I'd see. Now, that obviously hasn't happened yet, and for a lot of reasons, that could be political suicide for new Republicans that make the switch. But make no mistake, as I see it, those are the only three options on the table to get us out of this bind. And if you're thinking that maybe it doesn't really matter if we have a a default or if we uh, you know, just let the government shut down and let this thing drag on until cooler heads can prevail. Let me just remind you, there is a potentially nightmarish chain of events which can kick off should we go into shutdown and default. And I'm going to talk about something that is, as I see it, the worst case scenario. Now, this is not the most probable. I think the most probable is that one way or the other, Congress is going to elect a speaker in this, this coming week, maybe the next two weeks. I think that'll happen, and I think that some 11th-hour deal will stave us all from a shutdown. That's why I think the most probable is. Um, but what's the worst-case scenario? So the worst-case scenario is this. Let's say no speaker can get elected, or alternately, let's say the Freedom Caucus kind of gets what they want, and we go into a shutdown and a default. Keep in mind, most of the world currencies are pegged against the U.S. dollar what that means is we are the reserve currency for most of planet earth. If the US government goes into a shutdown, it will and we default on our debt most cr- critically. If that happens, it is going to cause a global economic crisis since most of the free world is pegged against the US dollar. That is going to be a disaster. And what you're going to see have uh, happen is China step in to become the new reserve currency, which is A big, hairy deal if they move that direction. The second thing that I think is incredibly likely in the event of this nightmare scenario happening is that China will attack Taiwan. Now, think about it. The U.S. government in this scenario was completely shut down and frozen. There's a war going on in Israel, which we've committed to help, although we can't really do much until we have a speaker. There's a war in Ukraine, which thus far we've been helping, but the U.S. is a little bit torn on whether or not it wants to continue. Pro tip, we should keep helping. But uh, again, I've done episodes on that. Go listen to them if you disagree or write me in and we can talk about it. But <clears throat> with two other wars going on that the U.S. is in some way likely to be involved in, from a supply and material standpoint, and the U.S. government shutdown and an economic crisis kicking off, there will never be a better time for China to take action against Taiwan, something that they've publicly said is an objective and they are willing to pursue militarily. Think about it. If you're the Chinese generals or the ruling Politburo of the People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party, the obvious time to make a move is when your primary adversary on the planet – is frozen in gridlock and causing an economic crisis. Why wouldn't they go after Taiwan then? And if they are successful and manage to take Taiwan, or at the very least, massively damage the microchip foundries that are there, which again are 80 to 90% of the world's microchip production, that is going to permanently change the balance of power in the world. China will become the preeminent power, and that is something the U.S. is not going to be able to crawl out of anytime soon. Think about it. Right now, the chaos in our government is showing just how weak and fractious things are. We as a country, and I say this predominantly to our politicians who almost assuredly don't listen to my show, need to pull our heads out of our asses and figure this out. Democracy is all about having to work with people that you sometimes disagree with. That's what this is. That's how this works. That's why this country is the great experiment. Sometimes you have to work with folks that you think are wrong, and you've got to find out some kind of a solution that works for the largest number of people on some level. This it-has-to-be-our-way-or-the-highway mentality is not how democracy works. That's how dictatorships work, certainly. But that's not how democracy works. The way democracy works is we get together, we figure out the closest solution that impacts in the most positive way possible the most number of people, at least how it's supposed to work, and then we move from there. And not everyone's going to be happy and not everyone's going to get everything they want. But yes, part of how this is supposed to work in a democratic society is with some level of compromise. And by having people on either side who refuse to compromise – whether it be the super crazy far left or the super crazy far right, those guys are not going to fix our problems. It's not about who can go and obstruct the most work getting done. It's about who can actually reach across the aisle, get some people to agree with you, and make positive changes. And our congressmen, you guys right now are in a position where with very little effort, you could really fuck up the entire planet, quite frankly. And I'm surprised that I, um. I have to point that out to you guys. Not you, the listener, but more like you, Congress. China is waiting in the wings to see how we handle this. The global economy hangs in the balance, and that's to say nothing of anything else happening in the world, like with Israel, like with Ukraine, like with Palestine, okay? The last thing we need is an emboldened China because we can't seem to figure out who to elect to a parliamentary position in the lower house of Congress. So for what it's worth, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you, Congress, to pull your heads out of your ass, figure it out, and stop being a bunch of jackasses. That's all I got for tonight. I hope I'll see you on the next one, and um, hope you all are doing well. We'll see where the rest of this week takes us. Talk to you then. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.